Greetings, Dr. Beckett. Welcome to the Quantum Leap Podcast. Theorizing that one could time travel within his own lifetime, Dr. Sam Beckett stepped into the Quantum Leap Accelerator and vanished. He awoke to find himself trapped in the past, facing mirror images that were not his own, and driven by an unknown force to change history for the better. His only guide on this journey is Al, an observer from his own time, who appears in the form of a hologram that only Sam can see and hear. And so Dr. Beckett finds himself leaping from life to life, striving to put right what once went wrong, and hoping each time that his next leap will be the leap home. You are listening to the Quantum Leap Podcast. This is episode 77, Nowhere to Run. Can you hear him? He's out there. Charlie, he's coming over the wire. He's going to kill us all. We got to get out of here. He's going to cut our heads off. Baxter! I warned you about acting crazy on my floor, didn't I? <laughs> Don't you fight me or I'll break your freaking neck. Like, that isn't necessary, is it? Sam. Don't, don't get up. Nah. Just don't get up. I can't breathe with my arm. No, you can't Stop breathe. Huh? Charlie's coming. Charlie's coming. You can't get up because you don't have any legs. Where am I out? Shut up. San Diego. Veterans Hospital. Veteran when? August 10th, 1968. You're a 26-year-old captain of the Marines named Ronald Miller. You served two tours before you lost both legs to a landmine. I wanted to help, so I became a volunteer. It helps pass the time. You don't strike me as a person who just passes the time. Waiting is more like it. Boyfriend? Little brother. So how long has it been? How long has what been? Since you've seen your wife. She's glad to have you back. (laughs) Yeah, well, I don't know. I'm not sure I'm exactly what she was expecting. Well, here we are, home sweet home. How many times are I going to say it? I told you, I don't want you coming around here. I just thought we could talk about it, Billy. I got nothing left to say. Carol, it's over. Are you okay? Yeah, go ahead. It's amazing what love can make a person do. What are you talking about? I'm talking about sabotaging your own life. You don't think anybody in their right mind would dump a woman like that, do you? What's he doing with that? Well, it's a lot easier to kill yourself if nobody cares. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Quantum Leap Podcast. I'm Christopher DeFilippis. I'm Alison Pregler. And I'm Matt Dale. And today we are discussing the season five episode, Nowhere to Run, and we are very excited in honor of Nowhere to Run to bring you a very special guest host, one of the writers and producers of Quantum Leap, Mr. Tommy Thompson. Tommy, welcome to the Quantum Leap podcast, or should I say, welcome back to the Quantum Leap podcast. Yeah, I was going to say, it's nice to be back with you guys. 
For those of you listening out there who might not know, Tommy wrote this episode, among others, and uh, we're just so grateful for you to take the time, Tommy, to come and talk to us about it because um, getting into season five, we know that it's a very different season. So not only do we want to talk about this episode and the inspiration behind it and the story behind it, but I'd also love, and I'm sure the, the listeners would love to hear just more in general about the atmosphere on the set during season five and what writing was like and all that. So I'm hoping we'll be able to get into that some of the specifics with this and some of the more broader stuff so if um, i can remember <laughs> it was a while ago but I, I i think i can help you all right well why don't we just start generally i mean um what was the inspiration for writing nowhere to run the inspiration for this was if you knew me it would be obvious i'm disabled I've, i had a disability i was in a car accident when i was 15 years old and i broke my neck and uh was paralyzed from the neck down for about eight months and then ended up in a rehab hospital. This was 1973. And I ended up in a rehabilitation hospital in Warm Springs, Georgia, and was there for a year learning how to get back on my feet and get my feeling back and just all that stuff. So I spent a year in a four-man ward with um, three African-American Vietnam vets. So I was 15 and I'm in this room with these three guys that I don't know. And most of them were double and triple amputees. So it was a really, really coming of age. I've been thinking I should write it as a film because it was such an, an amazing experience being there. And so many unbelievable things happened to me personally while I was there. I met I met a lot of different characters and, and had a lot of weird and terrifying and hilarious experiences. So when, when I was on Quantum, it just came natural that I, I wanted to write Sam as a uh, disabled character. And Don always had an affinity for Vietnam. And me having spent time with these guys, it was just natural for me to write this episode. You know, I'd written some more lighter episodes, you know, like the Beauty Queen episode and some of the other episodes. And, and I just felt like I was ready to write something heavier and just more to my experiences, you know, so, so it was real easy to write this episode. I was curious about that because I know that whenever we talk about um, episodes that are more comedic, we, oh, there's a Tommy episode. Um, <laughs> usually, you yeah. know, odds are that when, when we're laughing, it's because you were writing. And uh, it struck me when I was watching the episode this morning, I hadn't seen it in, in quite a long time. And it really was atypical of a lot of the stuff you've done for the series, mainly because it was just so serious. And um, there were moments of humor, but they were all, you know, poignant moments. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm thinking about, you know, like Heart of a Champion when you have Terry Funk. I think you wrote that one, right? Like I did, putting his, yeah. Putting his head through a locker. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, you know, it was heavier. And even as I watched it again, I thought, wow, this is like, everything seemed so sort of bleak. And... I was thinking about the acting and the episode felt slow to me. I, was, I said to my wife, I said, I wish I could re-edit this episode because I would just pick up the pace and the first two acts and get there a little bit quicker. But it was, you know, that was the beauty of the show was that it was a little movie every week and you could, the audience would let us sort of shift from one tone to another as long as it was sort of kept the elements of the series true which was you know sam solving problems and those problems having 
blow up and then he may have to come up with another plan. So it fit right into the template of what we were doing on the show. But it, it was a heavier episode and, and one that I felt good about getting out of my system because I had had so many moments that I wanted to get in there. And there were moments I could tell you the exact moments in the show that happened to me in that hospital and the things that I just took from my life, you know, and put in that episode. You anticipated my next question because I was thinking you you had some real life experience with this. I was going to ask were any of the characters or any of the situations drawn from those experiences other than as an inspiration, any of the stuff that specifically happened? Well, yeah, they definitely were. You know, when I went into the hospital, initially, I had a roommate who was in his mid-20s, and he had this beautiful girlfriend. She was uh, just the sweetest kid and she would come visit him and, and he was so cruel to her and mean to her. And, and I would always just couldn't believe how he treated her. And eventually she stopped coming and he told me, he goes, I wasn't going to do that to her. I wasn't going to have her marry me and get stuck with me as a husband. And so I watched somebody do that to somebody, you know, I watched, I watched that go down right in front of my eyes and and then there was, you know, being in that hospital, suicide was not far from a lot of our minds during that period. So it was sort of a thing that was always in the air of like, you know, you keep an eye on each other because you don't know when somebody's just going to, you know, have enough and just go over the edge. And um, uh, so a lot of that stuff was was real to life for me. It felt very authentic. Yeah. Like watching it, you can tell that it's it's drawn from real experiences and uh, it feels very real. And I think that your writing gave uh, so many great moments to um, a lot of great actors. I thought like there was no one that felt like they were unimportant or small in this story. And I thought and Michael Boatman did such a really nice job. Mm. I, I forgot about that scene at the pool when he just cried. You know, at night... I close my eyes and, and, and I'm back there. I see it all. It's like a song that plays over and over again. And you can't get it out of your head. Sometimes it gets so loud. I think my brain is going to explode. And that was just real authentic stuff coming from him. And I, you know, we had some problems editing, uh, Jennifer, she was pretty new to acting at that time, mm. and she did a lot of sighing. So it, we had to cut a lot of sighing out of her performance. <laughs> oh, that surprises me because she she'd done that the Ferris Bueller TV show by this point, right? I know she this was obviously pre Friends, but she was not new new to TV. Yeah, I don't know if she'd done a lot of drama, but she was perfect <laughs> for the part. I think she was just finding her way in Hollywood mm. at that time. But yeah, it was it was always fun casting those episodes because you never knew who was going to come through there and become like a big star. You know, I got a chance to write for her. I got a chance to write some of the first stuff Jennifer Garner ever did. And Haley Joel Osment came in when he was really young. And so it was fun casting that show. I really uh, enjoyed Judith Hogue in this episode as well. I thought she did a great job with uh, what could be a difficult character to play. Yeah, she was great. And I still see her on television. And every time I see her, I'm always I always smile because she was she's such a nice person. And yeah. And the other thing that I was really happy about with this episode was that 
I got all the music that I wanted in the show. <laughs> I noticed a lot of a lot of good stuff. That was such a good soundtrack. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I got the Bob Dylan song, mm. and I got the song "Time," which was a, a lift from uh, one of my favorite movies, which was "Coming Home," and that was a big inspiration for me too. Writing the uh, episode was that movie "Coming Home." Well, you had touched upon um, Judith Hogue in the episode, Allison, and playing Julie. It kind of struck me as one of the things, one of the aspects of the show that um, you don't touch upon too often because of just the nature of the show and you sort of have to have a story that progresses. But just the this, this sheer awkwardness between Sam and Julie as husband and wife. And I know that there was more going on there, but it struck me during those scenes where Sam is trying to connect with somebody. But how do you connect with someone who is an absolute stranger to you? Mm-hmm. in a way that is convincing. And I felt like that scene worked on quite a few levels because that's not something we often get to explore in Quantum Leap. Sam usually is pretty good at ingratiating himself into different situations and at least establishing some kind of rapport very quickly. And the silences, the awkward silences between the two of them, you could drive a truck through them. And it was just like, oh, it was so so uncomfortable. He, he doesn't usually have that sort of physical barrier to deal with with his new character usually it's it's just well i've got to figure out what this relationship is and then it's the usual you know complications of well you know either i'm a good guy or i'm a bad guy but in this situation there's a war and there's a disability and there's there's a whole gigantic wall that's been put up between these two people that he has to kind of navigate that he doesn't usually have to to deal with you know so it was interesting to it was also interesting when we were talking about the episode trying to figure it out the whole idea of writing sam as a as a amp, double amputee and what that would appear like to the other characters in the episode mm. and how i would be able to use that and ultimately i came up with the idea of well it's the perfect thing to use against the bad guy <laughs> the orderly and have a little fun. That was, you know, maybe the only fun of the episode was that character kind of getting his comeuppance. And when we when we went to put this show together, it was like, well, what do we do with Scott's legs practically while he's in that chair? And we were talking to Scott, and like, should we cover him? Should we? And Scott goes, why don't I just tuck him up underneath here and let's just not deal with it? It's it doesn't matter, you know. And, and that <laughs> ultimately that was the best way to deal with it was just to say to the audience. He's got to deal with this, but everybody else is seeing nothing, you know. But that was one of those quantum leap things you got to figure out every episode, basically. Thank you for okay. Uh, we've been having a debate. <laughs> I think I'm the only one that's how you can hear by Allison's heavy sigh. <laughs> was it ever firmly in concrete established whether or not Sam's mind or body was leaping? I'm of the opinion that it is malleable. <laughs> depending on what you need for the episode. In this case, it's obviously his body. Right. But what was what was the chapter and verse? I think it's one of those cheat things, you know, where it depended on the situation. And not often did, you know, I mean, I don't think we, unless we were leaping him into like a different sex or a different, like, you have to remind me, Did we, we never did him as a monkey, did we? Yes, of course. Yeah, <laughs> the monkey one. <laughs> 
That's our favorite episode. That's a legend on the Quantum Leap podcast. Don't get us started. I have a vague memory that Paul was going to write him as a monkey, but I think I was on my way out the door at that time. So I, I never really remembered whether we did that. But unless we were going to do something like that, we didn't really have to deal with the idea of what was his body or just his spirit leaping into these people. And I think my view of it was always that it was we, of course, would have to see his body. But in my mind, it was his spirit that was leaping into these people. Right. OK, that sounds an awful lot like vindication for me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He's, he's standing on two feet yeah. with no legs. He has to, it has to be his body this time around. I, I hear you. I hear you. But I don't know. It's one of those things, I guess, that you can interpret however it makes you feel good to interpret. Sure. I don't know. It's it's the math equation that we probably never figured out completely. <laughs> I mean, it's it's good to know that that is the perspective you were coming from, and I imagine a lot of the writers were coming from. It's just whatever feels right in the moment. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It was it, we had so many problems to figure out, and we had a we had a saying on the show, and it wasn't a cop out, but it was just something that Alfred Hitchcock had said one time, and he said, "If you have a hole." that you can drive a truck through, make sure you drive that truck as fast as you can. <laughs> <laughs> and that was always our thing was like, well, yeah. let's just drive the truck fast through this one, you know, and make sure that we don't linger too long on it. And, uh, mm -hmm. but, uh, yeah. Well, that truck was expertly weaving in and out of holes for five seasons. You guys did a great job. <laughs> and I think uh, just relating to that that truck and the hole, I think this this is the first episode that really explicitly states what Al sees in the waiting room. We talk a lot about what Al sees when he's in the imaging chamber, but the very start of this episode, Al says, look, I saw what I saw and came straight in here to tell you. That well, was the fastest he's ever showed up on a leap, I think. Booked it in there. Yeah, but he's never he's never said before whether he sees Sam or the Leapy, and we've made our assumptions. But this is um, yeah, th this is one of those yeah one of those trucks being driven really fast. Well, I think I think in the next episode, which is another one of mine, mm. which is Killing Time, that we deal with that a little bit more mm -hmm. explicitly in, sure. in the waiting room. And but uh, yeah, you know, Dean was. He, he really liked the episode and, and he actually came to me at one point and, and said, can you write me a moment? I'd like to talk about the wall. Can you write me a moment somewhere in here where I can just, you know, cause he didn't have an, uh, you know, Al didn't have an opportunity to play a lot of emotional stuff because he was really only playing with Sam. So I came up with the idea for him just to stand at the guy's bedside and talk to him out of his heart, how he was feeling about this. And, him being a military guy. And I bet you think nobody cares, but that's not true. Because I care, and Sam cares, and whatever it is that's jumping us around in time cares. They're gonna build a wall in Washington. And they're gonna carve all these names in it. Of all the victims of this lousy war, don't add another one to it, huh? There's so many, there's too many. <sighs> so I, I thought that was a really effective moment, too. 
that's some really beautiful material there and um yeah. I think it's it's quite a surprise because we we've all heard how after MIA Dean said he was a little uncomfortable with some of the places he was asked to go and he he wanted the writing staff to to dial it back a bit so seeing this scene I I wondered if you'd push things a bit but that's that's interesting to hear that actually he he maybe wanted a bit more to do Yeah well he got to know me we became friends and I think he was like listen whatever I can do Mm. I'd like I'd like to help you tell your the story that you want to tell here. So um, and I was just always a big Dean Stockwell fan. Just, mm. I thought we underutilized him all the time in the show. I, I was always like, we're not using not just the character. Al, we're not using the actor to his full abilities. So I was always determined to try to write something a little bigger for Dean to do in, in my episodes. And sometimes it did, sometimes it just didn't serve the story, but uh, it was a nice chance to give him a, a little moment because I, otherwise, and Dean was the kind of guy that didn't mind coming in and he had his little gimmicks and, you know, banging on the, the controller and his little things that he did. And he, he wasn't the hardest working guy in show business. <laughs> <laughs> he spent a lot of time, in his trailer reading or whatever he was doing in there. But uh, the funniest thing was you'd, you'd really see Dean unless he was working or unless he, he was actually in the scene. So I remember we were shooting some pickup stuff for killing time and it was the stripper stuff. <laughs> and we had hired this, this dancer to come down and Michael Watkins, who was, I think directed the episode was a great cameraman. And he was in fact, one of the cameramen at, at Woodstock and he was just really special. So Michael said, I'm just going to grab a, a handheld and I'm going to shoot this dancer up on a stage and, and then we'll cut it into the, the show. So I'm standing there and, and this girl's dancing and taking her clothes off and Michael's shooting her. And the next thing I know, I look over and Dean's standing next to me and, and I'm like, what are, you, what are you doing out of your trailer? He goes, oh, I just heard something was going on out here. And we were all laughing. We're like, ah, now we know how to get Dean out of his trailer. <laughs> but uh, yeah, that was, he was fun. He was, he's a good guy. Yeah. I was for one, very happy to see that scene because like you said, Dean is sometimes underutilized, even though he's always great. And for him to be able to do something dramatic that also touches on such a pivotal aspect of his, his character, his time as a POW and uh, as a vet, he doesn't often voice those things to anyone right uh, so when he does you know it you know it's always has an air of gravity to it yeah it felt like don always wrote dean big in his episodes you know like don always knew what a gift he had in dean as an actor and i would just go why aren't the rest of us either doing it or getting a chance to do it because if you look at a lot of dean bigger better moments in the series they're don belisario episodes because mm-hmm. mm-hmm. uh, i think don not only created the character Val, but really loved that character and um, really connected with him as his backstory as a military guy. And, and, and that's another thing, too, that you have to realize that, you know, Chris Rupenthal and Paul Brown and myself, we were the along with Deborah, but Deborah was married to Don. So that was a whole different situation. Um, we were really like the sons and he was the father and we were always trying to please him. and And so. I knew when I came up with this story and I went to pitch it to Don, I knew that it would strike a chord with Don and and he would get it because he liked that military stuff. He just 
that was that was his soft spot. So when I said I want to do him as a disabled vet in a VA hospital, he was like, done, go write it, you know, and mm. uh, it didn't take a lot to sell that story to him. There was one aspect of this story. Um, it, it happens in passing in the restaurant when uh, Sam is out with Julie having the dinner right before she breaks up with him when the hippie comes and spills Sam's beer in his lap. And then they have that awkward pause where he sees that he's disabled. Was there ever um, an edict from on high about whether or not you were going to deal with the counterculture of the 60s? I, I don't remember who said it, but I, I think I've heard that it was not something that Don was interested in exploring. And I'd be curious to know if it was a problem to get characters like that on screen. Well, he wasn't a fan of, you know, Don was not a uh, leftist uh, liberal uh, he was, you know, Don was hardcore conservative, probably a Republican, though. I don't know what his politics were. And um, he didn't have a lot of time for hippies and pot smokers. And he didn't have much patience for that stuff. So but it made sense if we were going to do a story about that time to have those two cultures clash, at least a, for a brief moment in the story, you know, because the hippies were saying don't go don't go fight this stupid war it's pointless and it's and ultimately those guys that i lived with in vietnam for instance i'll tell you a quick story so i'm 15 these guys are like in their mid-20s and they're all much more experienced and just have lived more in the world than i have at this point and one night we're all sitting around and we're talking about girls and we're talking about women and, and sex and everybody's talking and telling their story and they get to me and I don't have a story because I'm just a kid. And they all look at me like uh, they just can't believe how pitiful I am. <laughs> I, and they just start laughing at me. And I said to these guys, I go, listen, at least you guys ended up here for a good reason. I was in a stupid car accident that didn't mean anything to anybody. You guys at least were honored in a war and you got here being honorable soldiers. And they just thought I was the dumbest person they'd ever met in their life. And they were like, don't you understand that war was the dumbest reason to ever end up in this hospital. So I had to write a moment where the audience realizes that, okay, here's this hippie who's saying, who would have said to this guy, don't be stupid, man. Don't go to Vietnam and, and ruin your life for nothing. And then Sam being this character mm. that was like, I'm going to go do the what I believe is the right thing. Because if you, you know, I have a hard time even today when I see that Americans are vacationing in Vietnam and Americans go there and there's hotels and American hotels and businesses all over Vietnam. And I lived with these men who had their entire lives destroyed because we went to war there and it meant, and it ultimately meant nothing. It ultimately meant nothing to, to this country. So I thought that was the importance of that moment was this collision of these two ideals. I mean, that was something that was, uh, I don't think, touched on the show that much up until this point, talking about really the the meaninglessness of that war and the fact that once it was over, it wasn't really over. People in Vietnam didn't come back as heroes. A lot of them were were uh, treated very differently or very horribly. And I think like it was important to talk about that aspect. Right. Well, you know, here's the thing that nobody would think of 
unless you were in a situation where you were forced to think of it. If you get an injury like I had when I was a kid, okay, I was in a car accident with three other guys that I went to high school with. We'd all gone surfing and we were on our way home. We had a band that we were starting to make money, a rock band. And our lives were just beginning to reveal themselves to us. We got hit by a drunk driver out of nowhere, but I was the only one that got really injured in that car. The other guys got cut up a little bit, but the weird thing about that is that those guys, and I've talked to each one of them over the years, they don't ever even reflect on that accident. That accident was a thing that happened to them 40 plus years ago that is a blip on their lives radar. I've lived with the ramifications of that accident every day for my entire life. I live it today. I'll live it tomorrow. It's the central defining theme of every day of my life. So I wanted to look at these soldiers who went to war and had something happen to them that would be the defining event of their entire lives when ultimately the country wouldn't think twice about it down the line. You know, Mm -hmm. people don't think about Vietnam today. They don't talk about it. They don't reflect on it. But I guarantee the disabled vets do, and they think about it, and they have to deal with it every single day for the rest of their lives. So that was why I wanted that scene with Boatman where he says, it didn't mean anything. It was stupid. Mm -hmm. I gave up everything, and it doesn't mean anything to anybody. I wanted that message to get out in the episode that, listen, there's some people who get affected by things much different than the rest of us. And that's why Sam says, well, maybe that's what our purpose is. Maybe we're supposed to remind people that these things happen and maybe we don't have to do this again. Maybe if if there's enough of us and we're visible enough that people will remember that it was stupid and we shouldn't do it again. And maybe that's our purpose because I struggle every day with trying to figure out why this happened to me. And, And the only thing I can come up with after all these years is that I've become a mirror for society and for people to look at me, reflect on me and say, oh, yeah, maybe my problems aren't as big as I think they are. Maybe I I should just go back and not bitch about my life so much. Maybe I've got a lot of really good things in my life. And I, I have a lot of really good things in my life. And I've had a lot of really great success and accomplishments. And I've overcome a lot of this stuff. But I still have a lot of a lot of struggles with what happened to me. So I wanted to get all those themes into the episode. I think you did a great job. It was funny because for an episode where you said uh, the first two acts, you felt like you needed to get to it um, if you could re-edit it. But I'm thinking that none of those scenes to me seemed wasted in the beginning. They were all very carefully building the character, sort of exploring the relationships in a tentative way. And again, it resonated with me because Sam felt more like a fish out of water in this one than we usually see him. So there was there was an authenticity to that um, as far as I was concerned. I want to know, um, you're the writer. Was Julie going to dump him anyway? Or is, was it because of the uh, the double amputation? No, I don't think it was. I, I, in my mind, I don't think it was. I think that he asked that question because it was something that he didn't want to wrestle with the rest of his life. And maybe she let him off the hook and give him the answer. But I think that things happen in those situations where 
you become a different person because of a, something that happens to you. And you can never go back, either one of them, and be the same person they were before. And I guarantee that happened to a lot of people in that war or in any war that somebody goes away one person and comes back a different person. Mm. And that just doesn't happen to the person that goes away. That also happens to the person who is left behind. And, you know, I mean, she's a, in my mind, she's a good person. She just was alone and lonely and scared and saw this stuff on television every night and didn't know what was going to happen and met somebody and they were kind and you know how those things happened. And uh, I just wanted to show that. And I also wanted the audience to go, uh oh, now if he's not going to be with her, how's he going to fix that part of the problem? Mm. You know, where how's he going to have the kids and what's going to happen to all those guys in the Gulf that are supposed to be saved by his son? So I wanted to just throw another curve into the story that we could come back and, and solve and have everything wrap up. That was always the not just the fun part of doing quantum, but to me, the, the challenge was you had a lot of balls in the air and was how to make sure you catch them all before the show's over so that none of them hit the ground. And um, it always felt satisfying when you did that, you know, when you were sitting alone and you go, wait, she's the mother. Al just never thought about checking, <laughs> the name, you know, I mean, it was a simple mistake. It was like a clerical error on Al's part. Well, I just never looked at the mother's name. It was it was it was a different mother all, all along. So that was fun. And it's always rewarding when you come up with a moment like that. I also thought it was a very nice touch to reference the Gulf War, because when this was airing, the Gulf War was going on. So it was a way to bring it into more of a current framework as well. Yeah, it was always nice to get sort of maybe a current reference and then sort of set the plate again in the middle of the episode so that the audience is like, oh, yeah, there's other stuff going on here. This is all just these two are dealing with this. So, um, yeah, it was rewarding. The show was really rewarding, and it was very much like a geometry problem every week. You'd run into walls all the time and just like, how am I going to get over this? Uh, I'll just I'll figure I'll, and you put it down. You just put a story down and go. I'll come back later and and figure that out later. And uh, and that's where Chris and Paul were very helpful. We would always come in and go, help me. I'm stuck. I'm lost. I can't figure out how to get around this problem. So, uh, but yeah, that was our job. You mentioned that you and and Paul and Chris were a team. I have a couple of questions about sort of behind the scenes when it comes to the writing of the show specifically and the writing process overall. How far in advance did you guys break the season with the story beats that you wanted to tell? Um, that's question one. And question two, uh, because it's, it's sort of part and parcel, for season five, you guys probably knew that you might be on the bubble and that there might not be a season six. Did that influence the types of stories that you tried to tell in season five because you knew that you might not have a chance to do so after the season was over? Well, the first question, it was a different situation in television then than it is now. My son-in-law is a uh, writer, showrunner, and he's done a bunch of shows. But most of his shows are about 10 episodes or 11 episodes a season. We were doing 24 episodes a season. We were doing twice what most shows are doing now and it was tough it was really tough so you would end the season and basically say all right if we knew we were picked up everybody go 
away for a month and then come back and we're going to start breaking stories for next season because you'd always think you had a lot of time, but you never had enough time. So what would happen is we would start a season with maybe five or six ideas, maybe a couple more than that notions for episodes and we'd put them up on a big board and then we'd meet for two or three weeks and just throw up arenas, you know, just like, all right, what about this? What about that? Not sure that they would even make the cut, but that we would just have ideas to work with. Were there any really wild ideas, by the way, that like maybe this is probably not going to get made, but. Yeah. I mean, you know, aliens and, uh, <laughs> you know, I mean, we would all have our, our things, that we, you know, I mean, a monkey, you don't get much more <laughs> out there than a monkey. And, Listen, by the time you do your fifth season, you're 100 episodes in. Mm -hmm. So you've used up all the good ideas by this time. (laughs) That is very honest. (laughs) Yeah. No, all these easy ones are done. Or easy slash good ideas have been done. Mm -hmm. So now, you know, it was why when Spielberg came to me and offered me the job of running Sequest, I sort of jumped on it, even though I was still working on Quantum, because I could see that not only was the show running out of gas, but, you know, that was when Rick Oakey had come in and Jill Bernheim. And and we were starting to do stories that I didn't think we would have ever done when we were in our heyday, you know. Are you talking about Blood Moon specifically? No, or? no, that was my... Stop that, Allison. I own Blood Moon, and I, <laughs> I wear the badge that Blood Moon may be the worst episode ever written. But Blood Moon was one of those ideas, right? So it's like, all right, we've got 22 done or 20 done. And now everybody's on fumes. You know, you're like, oh my God, I, I got no more energy. I got no more, I got no more ideas. I don't want to see another computer screen and don says we need a script real fast all right tommy what do you got you know and i'm like uh i got what about a vampire thing he thinks he's a vampire but of course he's not he's in a like a cult or something and it's just that and don goes and at this point now it's easy to sell don because don just wants to get done you know so he goes all right go write it quick so that was blood moon but i could see that i was running out of inspiration for the show and i you know rightly so i'd written double digit episodes and and my writing is is in a lot of episodes that my name isn't on you know it's just the way it works but um i was tired of the concept by that time and and i was ready to go not anything bad about scott or it. i think everybody in a series in the fifth or sixth year is getting worn out but the thing about i was going to get about a season is you've got to keep developing these ideas Mm. every day because the monster, and that's what we used to call the show, the monster, the monster is eating all the time. It's feeding all the time. When you're sleeping, it's feeding, it's eating up and it's eating time. And you've got to keep that monster fed or, you know, you can't shut down. That was just, that was a, you know, nobody, if you if you let a series like ours shut down because you have don't have product, they fire you, you know, that you're not doing your job. So mm. we were always under the gun. But that's how I got hired on the show. You know, I mean, when mm. I first came in, they were under the gun. They were at the end of a first or second season and they didn't have a script to shoot. And they brought me in because they'd read a, 
a script I'd written, a, a, a Burt Reynolds BL striker that I'd written. And uh, they brought me in to pitch. And then they said to me, okay, we like that idea. Can you write it in four or five days? And I was like, yes, sure, absolutely. <laughs> so so I, I stayed up night and day and I writ, wrote it. And then that's when they said, okay, come do the show. You, we like your writing and come do the show. And But I only think that they liked it so much because it was just something they could shoot you know <laughs> and so there's a lot of pressure there's a lot of pressure on everybody to keep that product coming i think you've just summarized why i love the fifth season so much you always get such amazingly creative or often get the most creative ideas when there's extra pressure and when there's constraints and exactly like you said tommy that all all the easy ideas are gone you have nothing left. So you immediately have these constraints that you, you weren't blessed with uh, in the early days when you can uh, pick those low-hanging low fruit. And I, I love season five for all its kind of wacky, let's push the boat out, let's do different things. It's, it's I find it brilliant because you can just sense that, not quite desperation, but yeah, just pushing for something new. Yeah, because you've got a guy like Don who has such a singular vision of what the show mm. should be in and would really like get angry at you if you did if you came to him with ideas that didn't seem to fit his vision of the show. Well, it's easier to be that way in the first and second, third season, but he's also now saying to himself, I'm sure, I gotta loosen it up a little bit for these guys because if I don't, I'm not gonna have a show to shoot, you know? I mean, mm. because mm. I think he knew at that point, how difficult it was getting and, and how we were really working overtime to come up with these ideas. And, and when you would come up with a good idea, and I thought this was a good idea, I thought Killing Time was a good idea, but mm. even Killing Time, you know, doing the futuristic stuff with Al and going into the future and having Al now chasing a character out in reality and, and stuff, we were really starting to stretch the, <laughs> the show out but I think in a natural and good way. I think every mm -hmm. series, if you look at it, does the, every sci-fi based show. The show becomes much more elastic as it goes on. Mm. Well, Killin' Time in particular was a, a great example of um, how the show was broadening out in season five. Um, we got to see so much more of Owl's world, which was something that we just didn't get to see a lot of. And so I thought that was uh, really successful in that particular episode. Yeah. Well, that was the fun of it was like, I pitched the idea to the guys and we'd be in the room. I go, what if we do this? But what if, what if this guy gets away from Al? Mm. What if, what would he do? How would he, how would maybe Sam would never leave if, if this, what if this guy went out into the real world and got killed? Where would Sam go? You know, it just opened up a lot of questions. And, and we were like, well, Don's either going to love this or he's going <laughs> to throw something at, at him. You know? <laughs> Fortunately, I caught him in a moment where he went, yeah, let's try it. Let's see. I don't care. Let's do it. You know, I mean, maybe he was having marital problems, <laughs> but he let it, he let us run a little bit, but it, I never had a better situation creatively than I ever did when I was on quantum. I was always chasing that experience and never found it again. Well, let me break the timeline for the podcast here because I know I might be stealing my own thunder for the next episode, but I have to tell you, Killing Time, thank you. Probably my second favorite episode of the entire series, and I just want to give you the slow clap. Uh. 
absolutely love, love, love that episode. So just let me gush. Tommy, here I am gushing. <laughs> oh, thank you. Well, I like that episode too because, first of all, I love sort of the rural crime, gritty part of that series, which is him in the house with this family and the sheriff and the whole feeling of that. And then you got this other thing that's just completely out of left field that's going on in the future. And so I was like, yeah, if I can make those two things fit into the same box, I go, that that's a that's a pretty cool thing. And then I knew I was going to write Blood Moon at some point. So I had to do something. (laughs) (laughs) I've got to join Chris in the gushing as well. I I have nothing I can say about. Killing time, big, and I'm sorry to the guys for the next recording we do because I'm just gonna, I'm gonna have nothing useful to say. I just adore it. <laughs> I know you love this episode so much, Matt. Like you should, you should ask any questions while you while you got Tommy here. I don't, I don't, I don't know what to ask. That's the problem. This is like literally, I've I've been waiting to speak to the writer of this show since I was twelve, and oh my god, now you're here and I'm. <laughs> You're so sweet. <laughs> Made a huge impact on me. It's oh, such, thank such you. A good thank one. you. It was um, it was such a fun show to do, and I never fashioned myself a science fiction mm. writer. When I came to Hollywood, I I wanted to be Horton Foot. You know, I wanted to write Trip to Bountiful. I wanted to write about my grandparents and the and the you know and and just little town America. I wanted to write that kind of thing, and then. I wrote this script and fortunately Universal liked it. And, and then they'd ask me, well, what do we, you know, we've got a bunch of shows. What would you like to go pitch on? And I just seen quantum and I thought, you know, that would be a good, because here's another thing, right. That connects to me and my situation is the day I got hurt, we had been surfing and we were, we all had tickets to go see the Eagles that night. So we were at the beach and then, and my friends were up at the car saying, come on, we're going to, we got to go. We got to go and get changed. We got to go get these girls and we got to, we got to go to this concert. And I was the only one on the water. And I, I sat on my surfboard and I turned and I looked and I saw a set of waves coming and I put my hand up and I said, one more. And I went out and I caught a wave and I came back in. And if I hadn't done that, if I had just come in when those guys were calling me, I, we would never have been on that highway at that point where that guy crossed the medium and hit us. Mm-hmm. And for a long time, I, that played in my mind, like, what if? What if I had just done this? What if I had just done that? And then I see this series that's based a, completely in what if. What if you could change at one moment in your life? How would that domino and change everything else that came after or change the lives of anybody that you'd ever come in contact with? So I thought that's a series that I can get my emotional teeth in and I can get a lot of stuff out of my soul, out of my heart, because I know what it feels like to think about that. I I know what it feels like to want to change a moment in your life Mm -hmm. and want to play with that idea of being able to do that. So it was perfect for me to land on this show. And Mm -hmm. I, I always connected with the concept. And so I was just a natural on the show from day one. And that's why I probably wrote so many and was there for as long as I was, because I just, it was like perfect. It was, it was like, this is the show that I was born to write. Well, Tommy, it has been a pleasure to have you back on the show. I know this was a very personal episode for you. So thank you for coming on and sharing your inspiration and for laying it all out there for the listeners to hear. Um, It is always a pleasure when you're on the podcast and um, you're welcome back anytime. 
I appreciate you guys just still having a heart for the show and caring about the show, and it means a lot to me. So thanks a lot. All right, so that was the one, the only, the great Tommy Thompson. And uh, if that wasn't enough for you, just stay tuned because we got more show to come. Uh, Matt, Allison, and I will be talking more about Nowhere to Run. So um, stay tuned for these messages, and we'll catch you on the flip side. The QLP is brought to you by listeners like you. Please go to patreon.com slash quantum leap podcast and give as much as you can. For as little as a dollar a month, you can be a contributor to the quantum leap podcast. It goes to covering our server cost and helps keep the podcast going. Thank you. Hi, I'm Zoe Dean. I've got a couple of questions for you. Are you a fan of classic movies and old Hollywood? Are you a film history nut? Do you love podcasts? If you answered yes to any of these questions, then Not Just Yesterday, the Roddy McDowell podcast is the show for you. Not Just Yesterday is dedicated to Roddy's amazing life and career, and gives interesting and fun behind-the-scenes information about the projects he worked on. The show covers everything from How Green Was My Valley to Planet of the Apes, and continues to be updated every few months with exciting new shows and awesome content. Interested? It's free to listen. And the show is available for download wherever fine podcast programming is given away. Just type Not Just Yesterday, the Roddy McDowell podcast in the search bar and dive into the wonderful legacy left behind by Roddy McDowell. This is a podcast you will want to share with everyone you know and love. So plug in your headphones or turn up your speakers and remember to keep smiling. This is Natasha Pavlovich and you are listening to the Quantum Leap podcast. All right, everyone. Uh, here we are. We're back. And I am still inordinately pleased with myself because it never was a fast and hard rule. Mind, body, take that, oh Allison God, Pregler. I cannot <laughs> believe the vindication on your end. I cannot believe this. And, and in this episode, for it to be confirmed, I cannot, my mind is blown. It is so perfect. <laughs> it, you know, I'm not, I'm not going to argue with Tommy. He was there. But. The writer's guidelines are very clear that Allison is correct. <laughs> everything that's stated on the show is that it's his body. <laughs> and everything that we see, there's yeah. never anything that contradicts this. I'm, I'm sure I've quoted this before, but I'm just going to quote this again. He does not, this isn't an example of that he's leaped into a diamond cutter. He does not inhabit the diamond cutter's body or have the ability to access his talent or memory. That's what it says. In, so Tommy kept saying it's been a long time. You know? <laughs> wow. Wow, you really need to cling but to I this. Do, okay, I will say this. I, I hate that I'm giving a little bit of vindication to Chris here, <laughs> but in this particular episode, there is something that doesn't really make... Actually, no, it's not. Sorry, I'm taking that back. This is more vindication on my end, but also I have some questions. Okay. <laughs> so Jennifer Aniston is Kiki. She's looking at Sam's palm and reading it, and she's like... This is incredible. What? I've never seen a lifeline this long. We've got enough here for two people. Maybe more. How does she see Sam's palm? <laughs> 
if it is in fact Sam's palm. Exactly. It's not necessarily. It's it's a lovely moment for the audience, but within the fiction of the universe, fucking palm <laughs> reading. It's not real for yeah, goodness' how sake. How does she see it if she sees the guy he leaped into? Yes. So the guy he leaped into has got a long lifeline. Unless she really is psychic. She's Tamlin. This Miller guy just happens to have a long lifeline, a long enough lifeline for two lives. Whatever. That's just. Because palm reading is meaningless. With apologies to any listeners who are palm readers. <laughs> Maybe she's just a, you know, she's just a bullshitter and she didn't really see anything. But she was saying that because, you know, she's having that cutesy moment with him. And then, like, it kind of fit his story anyway. But she wasn't really seeing anything. Or she's slightly drunk. <laughs> Maybe. Maybe she's just a wee bit tipsy. <laughs> Did you guys notice, I just wanted to note about her character, that she's got a purse at the end, and it's reused from Animal Frat. Yes, I noticed that right away, Alice, and it was the top of my notes. <laughs> <laughs> I, fe- I feel like you're jerking me around here a little bit. <laughs> a little bit. A little you're bit. pulling my chain. <laughs> yeah. I'm just, I noticed it was a very distinct, I guess, because that was a 60s uh, prop that they had. They didn't get to reuse props that much. But uh, yeah, the lady in Animal Frat's holding it in the library Mm. scene. And at the very end, Kiki is holding that when she finds out the news about her brother. Yeah, I had some questions about Kiki myself. Um, I like Jennifer Aniston in this episode more than I remembered liking her, uh, mainly because she was sort of a splash of color in this relentlessly dreary environment. And I'm sure that that was deliberate. Mm. I think that Jennifer Aniston was surprisingly solid in this episode. Mm -hmm. I wanted to remember her more like Rachel on Friends than the character that she played here. And of course, this predates Friends, but I was just ready to be annoyed And I was pleasantly surprised (laughs) that I wasn't. That's all. It always throws me off a little bit when it's like a really well-known actor playing uh, one of these roles. But uh, I thought she did a great job. And it it helps that I didn't really watch a lot of Friends. So I (laughs) most like uh, I'm familiar with her from the classic movie Leprechaun. Of course you are. Of course you are. Sure. Of course. Yeah. Actually, her character in Leprechaun was a little similar to this. I'm just going to say. Okay. (laughs) And I should probably um, maybe qualify what I said about preparing to be annoyed. I don't think that Jennifer Aniston was bad on that show. And I actually think she's a very talented comedic actress and she could really pull the material she's given. But the whole aspect of Ross and Rachel on that show was just (laughs) so utterly ridiculous. And by the end, just like ludicrously annoying that I can't help but just think about it with a, it just, it just gives me a shiver. Chris, there's an important element that you don't understand. They were on a break. We were on a break! <laughs> we were on a break! Sorry, I'm sorry. I can I can feel you trying to leap through the microphone and strangle me now. I was always more of a Phoebe fan. Chandler, all the way. <laughs> the Smelly Cat song. <laughs> there's one moment in this of Jennifer's performance that I noted down because I was so impressed with it for somebody that hadn't done that much TV before. And then I was reading through the script afterwards and I realised that Tommy wrote it the way that I would have expected it to be performed. So that bit right at the start, um, or near the start, um, when Sam says, how many men are there in this place? And she says, too many. <laughs> she underplayed that so much. It's just so offhand. And I would have thought somebody who's not massively experienced would have really hammed that up for all it's worth. And in the script, it even says, beat, too many, beat. Like, it really lingers on it. And she doesn't. She throws it away like it's nothing. 
And it's, um, I think that was absolutely the right choice to do. And uh, yeah, I, I love that moment so much. I had to make a note of it. She was really uh, charming in this episode. And like, when you look at the basics of her character, when she comes in and she starts like massaging Sam, <laughs> like this is getting like hot and heavy with a character that has not previously had this intimate relationship with her. Mm-hmm. So she's really like, she's making the moves on this guy, knowing that his wife is coming and like really taking a leap uh, there. But she's so charming about it. You're like, yeah, they should be together. But when you think about it, it's like, what if he wasn't interested? What if like, what is like, she's just immediately going over and like making these moves on him. Uh, it's funny you bring that up because we're going back again to the island problem in Leaping of the Shrew. We talked about this extensively in the last episode. Yeah, but they haven't had any moments in between, unlike that one where there was some flirtatious moments before That's making That's what I mean. The move. So this, this is even more egregious in the sense that when Ron comes back, he's going to be like, where, where's my wife? Who are you? Mm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, there <laughs> are a lot of moments that Sam sort of took away from that guy a lot of it only makes sense if they remember the important parts and i've always kind of headcanoned it that way because it, yeah. it doesn't really make a lot of sense otherwise you got to drive that truck real fast through that hole <laughs> yes <laughs> that's a yeah. metaphor we're gonna keep using i like yeah. that <laughs> it's very good one thing i noticed about this episode too um i was looking at some of the credits for uh some of the extras in the episode or i guess ones that had lines and the guy at the very beginning that's uh that's grabbing onto sam yelling about uh charlie or something or other he uh he was actually disabled wasn't he yeah. i think i looked into it and he um all of his roles are like that like they're characters that are like in wheelchairs or crutches or whatever so i wondered if they purposefully cast extras or supporting characters that were also disabled in some way? I hope so. It's interesting you bring up that character, Allison, because I don't know what his personal history is, but when I watched the scene with him in the beginning, um, it's one of the few places in the script where I was just like, all right, that's a little bit overdone with Vietnam stuff. You know, the traumatized vet coming up saying, Charlie's on the wire and, you know, like like really somewhere in a PTSD flashback. That's been done to death in a lot of this stuff. And it just felt a little bit offhand and kind of trite in this. It was just like shorthand for them to be able to say, oh, he's a vet or he's in a vet hospital. But that, that's it exactly though, right? It's, it's shorthand. That's, you've got to do that with Quantum Leap. It's here's where we are. The action's happening. Go. Well, it's also like a big shock for Sam to come in and that's happening right in the middle of all of this like chaos. This guy's yelling at him. He doesn't understand what he's talking about. And uh, like it, it's more exciting than just, you know, he leaps in and then has no legs and then credits you know our opening credits yeah well but you know but you did you notice the other thing they did which quantum leap loves to do is they didn't do it in the leap in mm -hmm. uh i should say the leap out from shrew but they adr'd horribly dean saying in the leap in <laughs> for this one saying don't get up you can't get up because you have no legs oh yeah <laughs> sometimes they have to they have to shorten them in ways that are yeah <laughs> it's just like wow i don't i don't even know how al booked it in that quickly well, see, we talked he had about to have been this. Just standing in the waiting room when the guy appeared, and then just like jogged over, like just power run. <laughs> I want to say this. I want to say this. I think they learned their lesson for for Leap for Lisa. So there might be a protocol in place right after Leap for Lisa because Lisa died needlessly because Al was on the flight line, dicking around. He messed it up. All right, and right after that, holy shit, he's in Lee Harvey. What now? 
Jesus Christ, we really have to get a protocol together here. You know what they did? They moved his office closer because yeah. they're like, we're going to need you on call. Like, yeah, we're going to exactly. have like a little alarm that goes off. But on this one, I mean, he's there before Sam's there, practically, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? Yeah. So I think that they finally put some kind of uh, system in place where maybe they check beforehand what Sam should maybe be doing. And as a result, he didn't get up and float across the room. Uh, that's my headcanon for this. The one other thing that just struck me is, okay, this is so Quantum Leap. Um, Dick Orderly. Yeah, I think this might be the last Orderly that we have on the show, and they go out with a bang. Yeah, I kept thinking about Butch and Shock Theater. Yeah, me too. Exactly. They should have just got him back and said, same character. Why not? (laughs) Oh, man, he moved on to a new job. He's (laughs) like, I'm going to forget that other stuff that went on with (laughs) Asylum. Fresh start, and then he's making the same mistakes. When is Sam going to leap in and solve Butch's life? (laughs) He's got to lead him on the right path. Oh, there's some fan fiction waiting to happen. This guy who played the the orderly, what was the actor's name? Do you have that written down? His name was Gene Lithgow. Okay. Perfect quintessential like 80s early 90s bully character yeah like oh my you could God. just hear him calling someone a butthead just like so natural <laughs> that, did you you thought of biff tannen too did you what are you looking at butthead yeah very biff tannen yeah i loved him i loved him he was like straight out of a john hughes movie too he could have been the unrequited uh love interest for molly ringwald at some point <laughs> maybe it was just the haircut though i don't know there was just an air about that guy the buzz cut definitely like <laughs> give, gets him into character i think right so I want to know what you guys think. Um, when Sam looks down at the blanket or at the wheelchair or wherever he's at, does he see his legs? Does he see – what does he see? What does he see? Yes, he sees his legs. They even talk about it though. Him and Al talk about it because Sam yeah, is saying Yeah, refresh my like, memory on that. Yeah, they're, they're – um, he's getting ready to go on his date with Judith Hogue and he is contemplating whether he should roll the cuffs of his pants up or not. I've been trying to decide if I should roll the cuffs up or not. What do you think? Well, what, what difference does it make? Well, nobody sees you except me. Everybody else sees the real Miller. It's interesting they talked about, like, screening his legs out and all this other stuff when it's like, it's such a simple, effective way to um, add little details. Like, when he's in his wheelchair, the paddles at the bottom um, are not out like you would normally see because he has no legs. You wouldn't set them out otherwise. So he has to just tuck his legs in. And uh, it's something you might not think about, but, you know, some Mm. other shows might have, like, had those out or something. And it's like, well, that doesn't really make sense because his character doesn't have... And he likes. Mm. It was a small detail, but an important one. I know one of the novels is quite, and it's not one of the early Ashley McConnell ones, but one of the later novels is quite explicit that when at, when Sam looks down, he sees the leapy, but that's quite rare. Yeah, those ones uh, work on the mind theory. No, only, mm. I think like maybe one or two of them might go with the body thing, but I think because the first one... Uh, was very explicitly the mind. It was the uh, carny knowledge. Carny knowledge. And I remember a very specific scene in there where Sam yeah. looks at his arm and he sees the yeah. Leapy's twisted arm. The Ashley McConnell novel is different, but the um, after Ashley McConnell, the rest of the range generally goes with the mind, but still really? the question is, yeah, I would say like, so. But the- search and Rescue specifically is also mind. And that's the one I'm talking about. It's Search and Rescue where he looks down and sees the body because he's seeing the aura that everyone else is seeing. See, and that's what I was wondering in this. Is he going to see the aura or is he going to see his legs? And I, and I think at one point in Search and Rescue, he also hears the voice. I can't remember 
how, but he hears the voice of the person that he's leaped into. I'm sure it says something about that, but yeah. it's been a while since I well, read it. Well, Search and Rescue specifically is the body thing, because that's the one where he and Al are both on the leap, and Al has that uh, experience with a bear. <laughs> and yes. Uh, yes. Yeah, and that specifically goes into the fact that it's the, the leapy's body. Hmm. Yeah. Well, I uh, I went both ways in my book, so... But we'll get to the books and we'll review them. <laughs> you, yeah. you go both ways. I, that's just, huh? I said it, Allison, <laughs> and I'm going to stand by it. <laughs> but you know what? I kind of, um, yeah, I mean. In, in the show itself. I kind of like um, thinking of it both ways because uh, there is really interesting stories to be mined from if it is his mind and not his body. And I always kind of like saw little details where there would be physical changes uh, with Sam, uh, whether or not that was his body, uh, his body merging with this person, or if he actually switched with this person, or whatever. Um, specifically, Jimmy, he does seem to be more klutzy and have physical changes, and, and <laughs> they I do occasionally. Can I, can I please say it? Oh, oh yeah, <laughs> my grandmother's platter <laughs> and sound drop. <laughs> my grandmother's platter. Continue. <laughs> Although that's it, basically. Like, I think there's just there's there's interesting ideas to be mined. Uh, I I just don't think it was ever explicitly uh, there was nothing to support the mind theory um, on screen. It was always the body, but you can always headcanon certain things, and I think it's just sort of squishy, like uh, Tommy was saying. You know that it's just whatever fit the script at the moment. Yeah, oh, you seem so much more open to the idea since we spoke to a certain writer-producer of Quantum Leap that vindicated my point of view. <laughs> it was his body. Don't even. You know, I don't feel like this changes anything that I've said. <laughs> you know, I didn't even notice till this interview how much Tommy Thompson shaped things about this show. That were important to the show's lore, like Future Boy was a very integral episode to to the the canon of Quantum Leap, mm -hmm. and Killin' Time was the first and only time that you see the world outside of the project, yeah. um, and establishes uh, what this world is like. So he he really he did put his thumb on this show, you know, like his his fingerprint on the whole thing. Yeah, I think that he has a proud legacy that he can he can point to when it comes to uh, QL. I wanted to mention Al stuff in this episode. Uh, Tommy Thompson had mentioned that uh, he thought that Dean was being underutilized. And I think, like, this is a good example of, like, I didn't know that, that Dean Stockwell asked about to write that scene about the wall, which was great. But even if you don't have that scene in there, this story is not about Al, but you can tell that this affects him personally. And you can tell that he has internal things going on about this situation that aren't always stated or like implied in little bits of dialogue. When they walk in on Billy uh, being cruel to his uh, wife or fiance, whatever she was to him, she runs out and Al starts talking about sabotaging your own life. And I felt like that was him also referencing what happened to him after he was a POW. Are you talking specifically about how he had so many marriages and things like that? Yeah, I feel like he's a character who sabotaged his own life. Um, they talked about it with his uh, fifth wife, Maxine. He was just convinced that she cheated on him. And uh, I feel like he did that a lot. That's why he went through so many marriages. That's why he um, turned to alcohol. That's why he had all of these problems, I think, because part of it was self-sabotage. 
And they never really state it explicitly. Making the illusion and drawing the comparison, I think, is as close as you're going to get outside of that one scene in Seymour. Way back in, was I guess, Seymour season one or season two? Season one. Yeah. So when, when Sam just says, you know, we don't look, we don't look for solutions at the bottom of bottles. Get out of here. Before they really had like the bro relationship that they do as the series went on. But it's really the only other allusion to Al's alcoholism that's just so blatant. Hmm. Good observation, Nelson. I don't know if they specifically mention his drinking in this episode. No, no, they I just don't, feel like that's part of it. Yeah. And yeah. but was saying drawing that comparison, you can't help but bring all of that baggage in with it. Yeah. You know, and he even says lines um when uh Sam has that conversation with his wife outside uh and uh she walks away and Al says, like, oh, they said that when you got out of the jungle, war was over. And he's talking about his life, his experiences. Yeah. I'm an idiot because I never spoke to Tommy about that more specifically because you're right that those are sort of amazing bits of subtext. And I'm wondering how much of that was put in there deliberately, how much of that Dean brought to it with having some of the background to the character. Like, how did some of that gel together? But how did we not ask him about the end of the episode? Um, because normally Sam would give a pep talk and then they would cry and hug it out and Al would say – and he goes on to have 17 kids and win the Congressional Medal of Honor and he becomes a superhero. <laughs> <laughs> well, we know what happens. We know that he gets together with Kiki and we know what his, his children do. No, I'm not talking about Ron. I'm talking about Billy. Mm. That he let Billy take a header into that pool and almost let him die so that he could understand the value of his life. That is not a very TV ending. That is a ballsy right. choice, and mm -hmm. I wonder if they had any issues getting something like that approved, watching someone attempt suicide, even though it's within the fiction, on a primetime show. It was just, you know, and I mean viscerally. I know that we sort of had it in Lee Harvey Oswald where he kind of raises the razor and puts it to his wrist, but then they lightning leap out of that. Well, and also I think a lot of it um – I mean, Tom even mentioned it. A lot of it draws from his personal experiences and the people he met. And he didn't say if, if this was a thought that, that crossed his mind, but he talked about the fact that suicide was a very common thing there. And a lot of people had those thoughts. And I'm sure that that was something he wanted in there specifically, the fact that he wrestled with what the meaning of his accident was and, uh, you know... Going, I feel like a lot of the dialogue in there was very pointed about like, can you have a productive life? Can you have a new life? All of this stuff. And you have to face death to realize that your life still means something. And can I just back up on that point? Was I the only one that felt like just like a trite idiot thinking of Kirk and Savick? In that moment when Sam said um, he can't face life until he faces death. <laughs> kind of sounds like a line out of Rathacon. Sam, what the hell are you talking about? I'm talking about death. He's never going to be able to face life until he faces death. How we deal with death is at least as important as how we deal with life, wouldn't you say? You were the only one thinking that. No, I think Matt might have been thinking it. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I, I got that vibe. <laughs> Thank you, Mr. Savick. <laughs> Uh, not to make light of what was actually a very heavy and ballsy choice for this episode. Yes. Uh, like a, yeah. a really heavy direction for it to take. And I, I really loved that turn at the end of it. Michael Boatman was so good because like, he only he could only act with his head. He yeah. couldn't move mm -hmm. his body this whole episode. 
And uh, yeah, just powerful acting. Also, I looked at his credits and he was in a, another show. Um, I forget what it was called, but it was another uh, war show. And uh, he played a character that was named Samuel Beckett. <laughs> wow. Well, that's funny because I remember him from Spin City with Michael J. Fox. China Beach, 1988 to 1991, he played Private Samuel Beckett. Oh, that's amazing. Cool. That's pretty cool. China Beach was a big show. And that was the year before he did the Quantum Leap episode, so. Why, why did writers keep naming their characters Samuel Beckett when he's a very famous playwright? <laughs> Maybe that's why. Yeah. It was just you know, low-hanging fruit. But why specifically Samuel Beckett? It doesn't feel like there's any meaning to it here. I don't no, know if I don't in China so. Beach there was, but it's not like there's any sort of like parallels or cute reference. It's just... It's just weird that he's named Samuel Beckett. <laughs> it's funny. Maybe it's just the quantum leap nerd in me, but I always find, I don't know, when I think of the name Samuel Beckett, I get a very comforting feeling. And maybe because I think <laughs> Sam's going to rescue me, but um, I don't know. It's just a cozy yeah, name. Maybe. <laughs> Calling 90s writers. Why did you name everybody Samuel Beckett? Please call us here at the Quantum Leap Podcast. Why during 1989 to 1991 on two separate <laughs> TV shows... There was a character, a main character named Samuel Beckett. When did the actual Samuel Beckett pass away? Is he still around? Oh, oh no, no, nowhere near it. He died in 89. So 89, they were like, all right, the name's free. Yeah, he can't sue us. <laughs> the name's free. We're going to, except China Beach 88. So he was still around when they named the character Samuel Beckett. But Uh-oh. I, maybe if it's a famous person name, you can use it and, and not like if it's like a, you know, just an average person's name. I don't know. It's a mystery for the ages. Mm. Oh, so this was actually a regular character. I, I was thinking maybe he'd like been in a couple of episodes in a guest role and maybe we were going to find out that uh, the writer of that episode had written for Quantum Leap or something. But no, he's he goes right back to the pilot. So it, it was 61 episodes. Yeah. All right, fair enough. I thought it might have actually been a genuine sly nod to uh, Quantum Leap's Sam Beckett, um, if if it was a minor character. It was 88 when he started. That was before Quantum Leap. Right, good point. Yeah. So definitely not then. (laughs) I don't think it was. (laughs) Maybe Quantum Leap was doing a sly reference to... to... Yes. And they waited five seasons to bring the character in. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. They were playing the long game. <laughs> at last, both Samuel Beckett's on screen together. At, at last, our master plan can be unveiled. Oh my god, is this like Sam meeting his past self? Sure, go write that novel, Allison, I'll read it. Yeah, I'll do it. <laughs> did, did we have anything else we were going to note about this episode? There's not much to say about this, but I just wanted to briefly highlight the music. Velton's music is always good, but uh, every half dozen or so episodes, he does something amazing. And I just, I love the work in this one. This is one of those ones that I would kill for a, well, it wouldn't be a soundtrack CD because I think there's only about five minutes of music that they just keep reusing throughout the whole show. But uh, maybe a sound a soundtrack single for this one would be so good. I, I love it. The other thing relating to the music that I noticed, and I don't know if you guys picked up on, um, I think this episode might be unique in the way they handle the sound mix during the leap out, which I know is a really obscure thing to pick up on. 
but I love the way that the the music just holds right the way through the leap out into Killing Time. And usually the leap effect drowns it out, but it means you have that guitar wail just goes straight through with Sam, and it's, it's fabulous. He's coming on. tone of the guitar just changes as it as it goes through into this kind of dark what the shit is happening here you could definitely hear like the tonal change in it which is great i think i was just all giddy killing time fanboy at that point i was like killing time killing time killing time (laughs) and that's the thing it kind of especially when you're like us and you know what's coming up and you know what a good episode it is hearing that music just rising as he leaps out it like just it almost just gets you even more excited, but yeah, that's that's based on just just the my general comment about I think the, the soundtrack for this episode is just is really cool, and the the piece that they play over the end credits is uh, is really nice, really really nice. Yeah, I was surprised that Tommy Thompson selected the soundtrack songs for it because um, occasionally in scripts you will see like this song is playing or this music or whatever, but it's not usually like solidified like that. It's usually like playing a song of the time if it's even noted at all. Um, unless it's like important to the story because they have to get rights for certain songs and you know, so it's usually not the writer selecting what's there, but, uh, it's interesting that he got the songs that he wanted because of uh, the movie that inspired him. Was it was it Coming Home? Yeah, Coming that's a Jane Fonda film where um she's I don't know if she's a therapist or the wife of a of a vet who comes home paralyzed. Okay. It's from the 70s, I believe. Before we wrap up as well, can I share a really nerdy observation? And this is going to be so nerdy that you're going to want to cut this, but I want to share this with you two at least. Do it. So you guys remember a few episodes back, I was talking about the fact that I was fixing my copies of season five with the shifted opening credits, because that just that's just irritated me for years. So I've been fixing them by moving the um, moving the soundtrack up. And for Lee Harvey Oswald, I also had to swap out a couple of the clips because they're unique for Lee Harvey Oswald. And that, of course, because I'm me, led me to the point where I was like, well, all right, now I've got this copy of Lee Harvey Oswald where a couple of the clips are really good quality and the rest of them are really grotty because of the way they just kept reprinting and reprinting over the years. And it's um, they the, just the whole opening credit sequence looks rubbish. So naturally... As, as you would expect from me, that led me to the point where I was like, you know, I'm just going to rebuild the entire opening credits <laughs> for season five. I'm going to go back to the source material for each episode and drop in the clips <sighs> from the highest quality. You, come on, Chris, you know me. You, you knew I know, was, I know. I just well, don't know how you have time to do this, but <laughs> yeah. I love you for doing it. I, but what I've discovered is, um, and I'm going to have to now go back and do the other seasons as well to see if there's similar issues. In the season five credits, there are four points where they use um, unaired footage, but you would not realise that it's unaired footage unless you're doing what I did. And the reason I'm bringing this up now is because one of those bits is that famous clip where he's in his wheelchair coming through the door down the corridor and Al's running along next to him. And that is an alternate take. Oh. And you wouldn't know unless you were trying to synchronize them and they just won't sync because it's, um, hmm. yeah, it's a different take. Man, but no matter which episode you take it from, whether it's that intro sequence or this, it's going to look like crap because it, like, I think because it faded in from a commercial or something, it had an effect shot on it. So him coming through that door, just like the quality dips a lot. 
Yes, that's that's one of a, f- a few alternate takes that show up in the season five credits. I'm going to um, post a little a, li- a little task for you, sir. I assume that you have all of this stuff isolated and you have your own version of the season five open that's as correct as you're going to be able to make it up to your standards. I'd like to do kind of like what they do with the Star Trek, the original series remastered, where you have a side by side comparison on like a YouTube where you can see the differences between the effects. And uh, we do have uh, a YouTube channel. Quantum Leap Podcast does. So that is something we could easily post if you would uh, care to produce some kind of side-by-side comparison. Well, what what I always do when I'm doing something like this is one of the last things I do after I'm fairly sure everything's working is I do a um I, just for my own sanity and I did this with the trilogy re-edit that um that you guys have or at least I think Alison's seen I do a split screen um and I have like the left hand side is the old footage the right hand side is the new footage so it's not like a, it's not a side by side but it's effectively doing the same thing and I just do it to check my edit points to make sure that everything's lined up so I I pretty much have that and he's a little bit of time Tidying up, but um, yeah, I do have a split screen of season five uh, remastered versus original. Well, then, everybody out there listening who is interested in geeking out over Matt's fan edit, <laughs> we can uh, put that up on our YouTube channel. I believe all you have to do is search for Quantum Leap Podcast on YouTube. And I think the last thing that, because Albie usually takes care of that, I don't even look at it, but mm-hmm. I think he did put up the table read that we did for Leap Day. And there's a shot of that epic cover that Allison likes so much. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's so good. <laughs> so you can see that again. But uh, yeah, then I'm definitely, I'm, I'm going to commit us to it. I'd like to put that up on the YouTube channel for people to check out. I will sort that out. Matt, I know you say that this is very geeky. I appreciate your attention to all of these little details because this does interest me and I don't always notice stuff like that. I didn't know about the opening credits being out of sync like that. And uh, and we'll talk about it more when we get to that episode. But for people who don't know, uh, Trilogy, was it part two and three or one and two that aired as one? Yeah, part two and three. Part two and three originally aired as one part or in one night anyway and it had extra bits in it that were cut out when they uh, cut it into two episodes in syndication and i didn't know that until you were talking about it and you were editing it together from uh, someone recorded it when it was on tv and uh, i very much appreciated watching it all of the very meticulous notes you had about what is the time code what has changed because i wouldn't know <laughs> offhand but i do want to know these things so it was really yeah it was really cool seeing that stuff so thank you there's some weird stuff in there, like uh, at least one shot is flipped for uh, who knows why. But um, we're, again, we'll talk about that in more detail when we get there. All right. One, one thing I wanted to note, too, before we go, um, season five had a slightly different uh, color correction process. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know I'm going to get all the details wrong, so you might need to ask Skipper about this. He's the one that told me about it. But uh, so in that season, uh, they were editing directly on their prints rather than uh, like on tape or stuff like that, at least for the color correction, which is really risky to do because if you fuck it up, 
you're going to lose your stuff. <laughs> yeah, you're done. Yeah. But that's why season five, if you notice, does look better and a little more vibrant than some of the other episodes mm-hmm. did, at least before when they were just in SD. Yeah. It's funny you say that because you're talking about color correction. I, I can't help but think about color correction, number one, because I was on a podcast with Skipper for two years. But um, yeah. number two, <laughs> um, the NBC app where I watch my stuff, even though it seems to be the HD versions and all the music is intact – the Saga Cell is completely green. It looks like Hurricane every episode. Yeah. It is ridiculously green. Yeah, that stuff is like on tape and all that, so that looks like garbage. Yeah, all of the effects are really terrible because they did them on tape, and uh, like the Saga Cell and the intro were all just reused from tapes. Yeah, so anyway, that's that's my technical observation. And uh, Matt, thanks for going down that rabbit hole. It's so interesting. My pleasure. <laughs> it's interesting to me anyway. It's Allison. I'm sure our listeners like it. And I can't wait to see yeah. that comparison on the YouTubes. But that being said, I don't know how much more I have to say about Nowhere to Run. Do you guys have any final thoughts, Allison? Uh, it's a solid episode. And uh, I'm glad that we got a chance to talk to Tommy about it. Because I know it was something very personal to him, and he shared a lot of uh, deeper stuff with us about it that uh, helped me appreciate it even more. How about you, Matt? Yeah, same. It was really good to have uh, Tommy on to talk to about this and to unpack it a little bit. It's always been a solid episode. It's not one of my go-to ones because it is quite heavy. It's not one that I've watched a lot because I just I don't find it that enjoyable to watch, and that's not a um, it's not a negative reflection of the episode. It's just it's it's one that I struggle with a bit. But it was uh, yeah, it was good watching it with the fact that we'd be talking to Tommy in mind. And I'm going to concur with both of you. I think that it was a solid episode. And I know that season five has a reputation for being the wacky season, the not so good season, Mm -hmm. the what the fuck season. But I mean, this is just quintessential solid quantum leap. And um, I thought it was very well acted. I thought it was wonderfully written, except for maybe the fact that Ziggy wouldn't know who the kid's mother is. But anyway, that's (laughs) that's beside the point. (laughs) I mean, that's just because show. But um, other than that. Or even when Billy dies, she Ziggy seems very vague even about that. Yeah. Ziggy got wiggy. Ziggy got wiggy. So there we go. Uh, (laughs) And it won't be the last time in season five. All right. So um, that's uh, Nowhere to Run in the books. Uh, You know, usually what I do at this point, uh, uh, behind the scenes here for the listeners at home, I'll usually say, okay, Matt and Allison, we're going to pause here so that I can put in some tone so that we can put a note to insert feedback and Patreon news and things like that as we get closer to producing this episode. But as we were on the call with Tommy, not even in a half an hour ago, a new Patreon patron chimed in so they knew they knew we were talking to tommy thompson (laughs) and they're like i gotta get my money in on this (laughs) so this is in real time not even matt and allison have seen this but uh, we have a new patreon patron her name is carrie ahern and she joins us at the five dollar leaper level that means that carrie has access to all of the bonus content that we produce for the patreon feed that includes our uh extra shows like leaps elsewhere in which we discuss other projects that star scott or star 
Jardine. We already have two of those in the can that you'll be able to hear on the feed. And um, Fangent, which is just what we talk about when we're not talking about Quantum Leap. There are two of those as well. And we'll be producing more. And uh, we're having a great time doing that stuff over there. It's nice to talk about other stuff because Matt and Allison and I get on mic and it just goes in the weirdest places. But it's always fun <laughs> and it's always entertaining. <laughs> so <laughs> so uh, we figured, let's see if we can capture that and share that with the patrons. And they seem to be responding. We get a lot of thumbs up and, you know, little hearts. So people seem to like this show. So thank you, Carrie. Um, we hope that you enjoy uh, all of the bonus content. And if you listening out there would like to be like Carrie, you can do so at our Patreon site. That's patreon.com slash quantum leap podcast. You can sign up for any amount that you like, but you will get that bonus content at the $5 and up level. That's the leaper level and above. So go on, take a look, see if it's something that interests you. We have uh, sneak peeks here on the feed, so you can go back and listen to those. And uh, hey, if you can support us, that would be amazing. Thank you so much, Carrie, and to all the rest of our Patreon supporters. But you know, we know these are trying times. Um, we're in the middle of a pandemic. A lot of people aren't working. Uh, we, we don't expect anybody to, to pony up financially, but if you could just tell your friends about the show, if if you like it and you know other leapers that might like it, just spread the word. I mean, that is an amazing way to support us as well, because the more listeners we get, um, the bigger the show gets and the better off everybody is. So um, if you have friends that you know would like the show, just uh, tell them, hey, give it a listen. Thanks so much for the support, Carrie. And uh, I just wanted to say thank you to Hayden for helping to uh, get this interview together for this episode. Because I know like a lot of uh, Patreon supporters were really wanting to see more uh, interviews and other uh, non-Patreon supporters were wanting to see, you know, us talk to to more people. So I'm glad that we're able to uh, get some more of that behind the scenes content that people really want to hear. Yeah, thanks, Hayden. We couldn't do it without you. Well, we could, but it wouldn't be as good. Um, (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, like I said, you don't have to support us on Patreon to be heard on the show. There are many ways that you can contact us here at the Quantum Leap Podcast. You can reach us by phone at 707-847-6682. You can email us at quantumleappodcast at gmail.com. You can follow us on Facebook at facebook.com slash quantumleappodcast. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at quantumleappod. And like I said before, you can support us on Patreon like Carrie Ahern does at patreon.com slash quantumleappodcast. Just remember that we may use your response in an upcoming episode of the Quantum Leap Podcast. And speaking of upcoming episodes, Matt, I think we all know what's next. (laughs) Yeah, we've spoken about it enough tonight. I think we all know it's killing time. Super, super, super excited 
to be talking killing time. I've been waiting for this since we started podcasting. So like I told Tommy and like I kind of I kind of blew the lid off my secret anyway. I don't know if it's still uh, Matt's, you know, we haven't heard Matt's favorite or least favorite yet. And maybe we'll get a revelation next episode. It's got to be his favorite. He's got no cool about it. <laughs> <laughs> but we'll save that, Matt. No pressure. You you can yeah. you can reveal whether or not that's the case next time. He'll say he it's his like least favorite episode. It'll be like a total <laughs> twist. Right. What a twist! Tommy Thompson certainly did write my least favorite episode. Uh, that's not going to be a twist. Uh, oh my god! Is it Blood Moon? <laughs> It cannot be Blood Moon. Blood Moon. I'm sorry, I'm getting loopy. I'm very, very tired. I'm excited about, about killing time too. All right, Allison, I shall set you free. Um, I can't wait to talk about it with you guys. I hope, uh, Allison, that you're just as loopy. Matt, I hope you're just as enthused. Until then, I have been... Oh, I'm so excited. I've been Christopher DeFilippis. I've been Allison Pregler. And I've been Matt Dale. And we'll see you next time, everyone. For killing time! Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Quantum Leap podcast, hosted by Allison, Matt, and Chris, with voice talent and contributions from Hayden McQueenie and Zoe Dean. Visit us at quantumleappodcast.com. To support the show, please go to patreon.com slash quantumleappodcast. The Quantum Leap podcast is edited by Albie, Christopher DeFilippis, and Allison Pregler. The executive producer of the Quantum Leap podcast is Albert Burge. Christopher DeFilippis and Hayden McQueenie are the co-executive producers. Morgan Felden is the producer. The thoughts expressed on this podcast are those of the individual and do not necessarily represent those of the Quantum Leap podcast, its partners, or affiliates. The Quantum Leap universe and all it contains is the property of Belisarius Productions and Universal Television. The Quantum Leap podcast is not affiliated with Belisarius Productions or Universal Television, and no copyright infringement is intended. Please visit barrenspace.com for this and other amazing content. The Quantum Leap Podcast is a Baron Space production. Okay, that sounds an awful lot like vindication.